All right. So a little bit of an intro to me. I know many of you. I see some familiar faces, but I don't know many of you as well. So my name is Whitney Gamble-Smith. It's a little weird for me to say that. I um, just recently have been married in April to my husband, Jack. He's a seminary student and finishing up his last year. I've been a member here at Grace for, I think, about six or seven years. I uh, have served in children's ministry. Uh, Jack and I are members of the Foundation Bible Study. I teach and work up at the university, the Master's University. I'm the director of interdisciplinary studies up there. I have studied the Puritans and the Reformation for a long time, uh, 15 years professionally about. I um, was able to study in Scotland uh, for grad school and just spend three years in a library reading the Puritans, reading people, the Reformation, So, which was a huge blessing. Um, and I've been teaching on these topics for about about 10 or 12 years as well. So I love church history. It's so much fun. Um, and I hope that after this session, you'll be able to learn a little bit more about the Reformation. The Reformation is dear to my heart. It's really dear to all of our hearts in the sense that Grace Community Church is really a product of the Reformation. And you'll see some of those themes as I go through. Um, but the Reformation was a cataclysmic event And I want to spend some time, let me give you a little bit of a context of where we're going this morning. I want to talk about the Reformation, introduce it, what was it. I'm I'm cognizant of the fact that we only have 45, 50 minutes. So half of our session, a little bit, will be on just the context of the Reformation because I think it's important to set context first. So as a trained historian, when we look at people, when we look at events in the past, we want to make sure we're examining the context, examining the events that went on, the culture, who was leading, who was in charge, who are the kings, who are the emperors, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then I want to talk about the theology a little bit because that's very important. And then use that as a segue to talk about two women of the Reformation. I could spend the whole time talking about women of the Reformation, and that is the title, but I also want to talk a little bit about men of the Reformation and the Reformation itself. So that's where we end up. And I want to leave time for questions. So as I'm talking, if you have questions, please make note of them. I love questions. I love ask, talking with you, asking with you questions, that kind of thing. So make note of them. And then at, at the end, we'll have time to go through questions. So, all right. The Reformation. What was the Reformation? So cataclysmic event. Oh, Perfect. Here, I made a little outline for you guys. If, you are, if you're taking notes, here, here is a rough outline. So first, the first half is the Reformation, the Reformers fight for the gospel. Two points, salvation, sanctity of all of life. I'm going to explain that as we go. And then two women of the Reformation. I chose the two most famous. Um, Luther's wife and Calvin's wife. I couldn't resist. Um, those are, those are the, the women we will be looking at this morning. Uh, I'll be putting this outline back up again. So if you're taking notes, you don't have to copy it all down right now. This is just to give you a little bit of a guideline where we're going to be going for the next 45, 50 minutes. So what was the Reformation? It was a movement, a cataclysmic event. It changed all of life. The fact that you have a book in your hand today, that you have paper in your hand today, that we have Bibles, it's because of the Reformation, actually. Um, many, many things happened, not only theologically, but culturally. So the printing press, books, Bibles, mass-produced Bibles. Part of that came about because of the Renaissance, but that was tied with Reformation ideas. So as a historian, we say the Reformation really changed all of Western society. Pretty much government structure, 
many things that seem familiar to us today are as a result of the Reformation and thoughts that happened at the Reformation, which makes an extremely interesting time to study. Really, really fun. So technically, what are the dates? You can debate about this. 1517 to 1564 are the traditional dates. 1517 being, does anyone know what that is off the top of their head? 95 theses? Oh, this is awesome. You, you know. 95 theses when, when Luther nailed his 95 points of protest against the Catholic Church to the door, church door in Wittenberg. And 1564, anyone know that one by any chance? Offhand. The, that's the death of Calvin. So Calvin died in 1564. So t- traditionally, these can be the dates of the Reformation. Of course, there were things happening before, and it continued on after. But those are kind of a helpful point to put in your brain. The map there shows the extent of the Reformation. And I think this is interesting because it shows, you'll see, some countries that really didn't experience much of a Reformation at all. So if you know anything about our missionaries, GCC missionaries, for instance, in Italy or in Spain, you can see there those countries really don't have much of a heritage of Reformation. And that still impacts the church today um, when we hear missionaries come back and talk about their work of Reformation in Italy. There's not really much of a cognizance of evangelical gospel thinking there. It's a very hard country. Um, But you can see many, many countries were affected. Most of Europe, much of Europe, was affected by the thoughts of, of the Reformation and the Reformers. Europe at this time was ruled by powerful emperors, and these emperors in turn were crowned by the Pope. So since Charlemagne all the way through mid-1500s, each new emperor in Europe was crowned by the Pope because Charlemagne realized that, oh, the church has authority over the state. Christ is king, Christ is Lord, so the Pope should crown every emperor. That continued for over a thousand years. That's a long time. <laughs> um, so each new emperor, and they were called emperors there because they, were, they ruled over many, many countries. So these, this map, this is modern-day Europe with modern-day Europe country lines put on Europe. It didn't look like this as far as countries back then. States and countries were much more fluid. Anyway the Pope would crown each new emperor. So there was this very tight connection between church and state, which meant the emperor didn't want to make the Pope mad for any reason, because then he would lose his legitimacy as emperor. And the Pope didn't want to make the emperor mad either. There were these, this relationship that they had with each other. Basically, they kept vying for more and more power. So as the, de- as the decades and centuries went on, The emperors wanted to become more and more powerful, but they were crowned by the Pope, so there was this tension. And it actually produced wars between... The Pope had his own army, he had his little Vatican city army in Rome, and then the emperors had their own armies as well. Lots of political conflict going on. What that meant was that church leaders, and this is a generalization, but it's accurate, church leaders were motivated by political gain rather than preaching the gospel. They wanted power, they wanted more land, because that meant they got more soldiers, they had more recognition. So instead of proclaiming the gospel, they were concerned with appeasing powerful rulers in the church. And to complicate things, church services were conducted in Latin at that point in time. Everyone spoke Latin, that was the the common language. Well, the elite spoke Latin. The people didn't, 
which makes it complicated. So look at all these countries at this, at this map. Think of your, in your mind how many languages this represents today, right? Where it's all the way through Norway, Sweden, Denmark, all the way down Germany, France, Spain, England, all the Eastern European countries. Today, how many languages are represented there? Dozens. Even more so back then. Now, be with globalization, language, a lot of languages have actually are no longer in use. So you have dozens, possibly even a hundred or so languages, languages being spoken throughout this region. So the elite, they couldn't learn a hundred languages, so everyone spoke Latin, if you were trained. If you went to, at that point in time, before universities, you would be trained in the church. You would be trained as a, as a nun or a monk. But the common people, the average people, wouldn't have known Latin. They wouldn't have learned Latin. So when you come to church on Sunday, which was required, you had to go to church, everything was in Latin. Nothing's in German, nothing's in French, nothing's in the Swiss dialect that you grew up speaking. So when you come to church as a normal person, you can't understand anything that's going on. You can't understand, even if the gospel were being preached, you wouldn't be able to understand it. So no one's hearing the gospel. There is no gospel being preached during this time, and that's why this time is called the, the Dark Ages. It's not really called that anymore. That's not politically correct. We call it the, mi- the Middle Ages. But technically, um, and for, for a while, historians call it the Dark Ages because there is no gospel being preached. At the same time, however, there were a number of men who started translating the Bible into the vernacular, into the common tongue of the people. They started relearning Hebrew and Greek. So there was a push to learn the original languages of the Bible. And as they started doing that, they began to read the gospel. (laughs) Uh, They began to get saved by reading the Bible, translating the Bible, reading it in its original language, And as they began to do that, they began to realize, oh, the people who are leading the church, A, they maybe aren't even saved themselves. B, they don't know the gospel. C, the people aren't hearing the gospel. So a small group of men started translating the Bible into French, into German, into all of these different languages. They started teaching and actually preaching the Bible, which wasn't a thing, and people started to get saved. People started coming, they started hearing the gospel for the first time, and they started to become saved. Now, the Pope finds out about this, the emperors find out about this, and they're not happy. Because what does that mean? If people are starting to understand the gospel, they're starting to think for themselves, think biblically, they started questioning what the Pope was doing, what the priests were doing, because the church was extremely corrupt. So if, if anyone has a background in Catholicism, priests aren't supposed to get married, right? They take a vow of celibacy. Well, of course, that's in the church books, but no priest followed that. Priests would have multiple mistresses, multiple illegitimate children. Everyone knew about it, but they're the priests, so... They're untouchable. We don't talk about it. Everyone knows, but we don't talk about it. As people are reading the Bible for themselves, they're seeing that, oh, that's maybe not what God wants. 
and they start questioning things. The Pope's not happy. The emperors aren't happy. And so they, they forbid the small group of men to preach, stop translating. If you, if you keep doing it, you're going to be imprisoned. And that's exactly what happened. They were imprisoned, not only imprisoned, they were many, many, many of them were martyred, burned at the stake because they refused to stop doing what they were doing. That's the context. That's what's happening with the Reformation. And that's why we call it the Reformation. It's a, it's a, it's a reformation of everyone's hearts. That was the, the heart of the Reformation. The men that were pushing for reform saw massive ignorance. They saw people don't know the gospel. They're not hearing the gospel. That's a problem. Um, and they push for a reform of people's hearts. As, and that came about directly from the text, the biblical text. And we understand that here at GCC. How do we know how to follow Christ faithfully? How do we know how to live faithfully? It's, it's through a study of scripture. And that's the wonderful thing about being connected to a church that has such a high view of scripture. It's a direct what's the word? Correlation. It's a direct result of thinking of the Reformation. That was exactly the heart of the men of the Reformation was to push for a biblical understanding of salvation. And then we're going to look also at the sanctity of all of life. But I want to talk about these two things first. So salvation and the sanctity of all of life. The reformers realized the gospel wasn't being preached. So what did they do? They advocated for a biblically and doctrinally sound preaching of the word. And primarily, the man I'm going to highlight um, who did that was Martin Luther. There is, he, he has a rather grumpy face. And you can see it there. Um, <laughs> he was not very happy. And I don't know that there's a single portrait of him where he is happy. Part of that was that they weren't necessarily smiling for portraits back then, but he is singularly unhappy in many of his pictures. Um, So Luther, we probably all know his name, one of the most famous reformers. And as I mentioned, the start date of the Reformation can can be put at 1517 when he nailed his 95 protests. And that's where we get the word Protestant versus Catholic. He protested against the practices of the church He said, hey, there are 95 things that I see in the church that are wrong. Deal with them. Come come get me. He was a fighter. (laughs) He was a fighter. Um, He was not afraid to fight. So he announced his protest to the church. But his main issue, and we could talk the whole time just on Luther, but as he read the Bible, as he learned Greek, learned Hebrew, as he studied the original text, he struggled deeply as a Catholic priest with the question of how can I be right before a holy God? I know that I'm a sinner. I know that my heart is wicked and I know God is holy. How can I approach him? And he he was in despair. He was in deep depression trying to figure this out. He literally starved himself. He beat his body. He went to confession for hours every day. And during sleeplessness, he kept himself at night trying to figure out how do I come before a holy God? And that's because, and this is a little bit of background, in the Roman Catholic Church, and maybe some of you know this, salvation is a little bit like an American football game. So an American football game, you start off, you get a kickoff, and that's like baptism. You baptize your baby, that gets them going in the right direction. And then... During your life, you have multiple chances to get to the goal, which is heaven. You want to get to heaven. So you can pass the ball, 
you can kick the ball. I don't really know anything about sports. I think that's how it works. Um, and that happens with the, with the hopeful thing that you're going to get to heaven, which is the end line um, to the end. And the, the problem is you don't know that you're ever going to get there. So passing the ball, kicking the ball, those are, there are seven things that the church has said. Hey, if you do these seven things, you'll probably get there. It'll get you closer to the goal. Seven sacraments. So marriage, um, communion, Eucharist, last rites at the end, baptism, of course. You do these things, and you hope by doing them that at the end, you've gotten to the end goal, which is heaven, but you don't actually really know. You don't really know where you are in the playing field. Not like on the TV where it tells you this is the first and down, first yards, the number of downs. You don't know that. You're just going and you're doing these things and you're hoping that it's good enough to get you there to the end. And for, for Luther, that just meant he was in agony. He just, he's, I don't know. Am I good enough? Am I, have I done enough? Am I right? Have I made myself good enough to come before God? Now, you might ask, which is a very good question. Why was this the understanding of the church? Isn't the Bible clear about the fact that no one can come before God? No one's righteous. No, not one. We come by faith. It's a gift. Hello. Why don't you know that Catholic church? Well, the answer is it comes down to an issue of translation, actually. So if you look at Romans 5.1, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This word justified in Latin which was, again, the only language that priests are speaking and reading, to be justified means to make holy. The way that the grammar works, we are talking about grammar on Sunday morning, to make gra- the way that the grammar works is, the word is translated to make holy. So by your faith, you make yourself more holy. Do you see how you can get that from the text, actually? So as you do things in faith, you make yourself more holy. That's what justification is. And so that's what they thought, and that's what they taught, and that's what they believed. And Luther learns Greek, and he learns Hebrew, and he reads Romans 5, and he's like, wait a second, that's actually not what the original languages say. It's a different grammar structure. (laughs) Um, Justified in Greek and Hebrew means that you're declared to be holy by someone else. It's actually done to you. You don't do it, it's done to you. And it's actually used in Greek and Hebrew in a legal sense, where you come before a judge, and the judge knows you're guilty, you have committed whatever crime, whatever thing, and he looks at you and he says, I declare that you're innocent, because someone else has stepped in and has taken that crime, taken that guilt upon himself. And that someone else is Christ himself. That's the gospel. (laughs) And that's what Luther rediscovered. Not just Luther, but there were a number of other men who worked in this way. Luther actually wasn't as good in Greek and Hebrew. Melanchthon, his friend, was better. So Melanchthon talked to Luther and was like, actually, here, Luther, this is what's going on in the Greek and Hebrew. Um... So that revolutionized the church, and that's, this is really what drove the Reformation. So learn grammar, it's really important. Um, so what this did, not only did it change how salvation was understood, 
it also changed how one understood the Christian life. So up until that point in the Roman Catholic system, to be a Christian, and this, there are some parallels to, to today if, if you have Catholic friends or a Catholic background. What is it to be a Christian? Well, you're baptized, and you go to, you go to Mass as much as possible. You're a good person, right? You, you, you try to be a good person. Then you're a Christian. You're good. And the reformers are like, uh, no, that's, that's not what we see happening in the text. So this declaration of holiness then produces a life of sanctification, which is becoming holy in how you act and how you think. So when you leave church on Sunday, you're not done. <laughs> it continues throughout the week. And again, think about it, the context, it makes sense. If you go to church on Sunday in the Catholic system and everything's in Latin and you don't understand it, it's a foreign language to you, you're going to sit in the back and talk with your friends, which is exactly what everyone did. And you're going to go home and it's not going to affect your life because literally you don't understand it. But now people are going to church, they're hearing it in their own language, and they're realizing, oh, this has to affect how I think on Monday morning, how I think on Tuesday morning, how I think on Wednesday morning. And that's exactly what the Reformation did. It produced this idea that all of life should actually become holy, becomes sanctified, sanctus, holy, made holy. And the theologian that championed this idea, John Calvin, I love this picture of him. I love John Calvin a lot. So 1509, 1564, he's known as kind of the next wave of reformers. You you maybe noticed he's a little bit younger than Luther. He was French. He worked in Switzerland. France at that point in time cracked down really, really hard on reformers. They were anyone who preached anything against the Catholic Church were expelled. So Calvin, who was trained as a lawyer, actually, he was very, very gifted with writing, with his words. He wanted to be a lawyer. And then he became saved. And he's like, I I have to preach, I have to teach, I have to write theology. And he begins to do that. He's kicked out of his university and threatened with being killed. So he flees to Switzerland. He finds a home in Geneva, starts preaching. Geneva hates him (laughs) because he begins by saying, "Um, hey, all of your life has to reflect the gospel. Because his life motto, and if you have your Bibles, um, go ahead and turn there, Romans 12 very probably familiar passage to most of you. You maybe know where I'm going with this. Romans 12, verse 1, was Calvin's motto. Romans 12, verse 1, which I will read to you. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This was, this was Calvin's motto, and it, this became his life's motto. So much so, his whole life was sacrificed to God. And he said, if, if you call yourself a believer, this is the mandate. This is what it looks like. Your life becomes a living sacrifice. What does that mean? It means you're dead to your own interests. You're dead to your own desires. And everything, every part of life becomes offered to God, which means for Calvin, which was revolutionary, every part of life becomes holy because every part of life is an offering 
given to the Lord. Now, for us in this room, this revolutionized the world for women, especially, because it meant that changing diapers (laughs) became something that was offered up to the Lord as a holy sacrifice. And Calvin believed that. And he did revolutionary things in the city of Geneva. For instance, prostitutes, which prostitution was legal, it was rampant, it was everywhere. He saved those women and started training them how to do things. They became cobblers. They became, what's the word, to make clothing? Fabric workers? Seamstresses! (laughs) Seamstresses. He, he, He taught them how to do a trade because he believed it's actually honorable to be a cobbler. It's honorable to take care of your family well as a wife and as a mother. All of life became sanctified, became holy. This is a Reformation idea. This was not in the Catholic Church at all. In the Catholic Church, it's only valuable if you become a priest because that's the only way you're going to get to heaven is if your whole life is devoted to God but in a, a nunnery or a monastery. Calvin's like, no, 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 read Romans, (laughs) read, in fact, if you think about other texts in the New Testament, think about Paul in Colossians 1, he says, Christ created everything, everything finds its meaning in Christ, Christ upholds all things, so that means all things find their value in Christ, so that means all things, all things, which means your daily life cooking for your family, providing for your family, taking care of your children. There's value in that. There's meaning in that. So he championed this idea. It changed the world. Um, As he was doing that, he was working on his institutes of the Christian religion, which summarized the Reformed truths. These uh, institutes are still the best, with an asterisk, Summary of the Christian religion, biblical theology, is actually based on them. So I will say that. Um, It's a two-volume set. You can get them now. They're amazing. I think they're in the bookstore. Calvin's Institute's incredible summary of the Christian religion. He was working on them. He was a kind, gentle, thoughtful man. He was a scholar among scholars. And he created this little motto. So you can see here on the left-hand side is his own personal motto that he would stamp his letters with. And you can see it says I and C, Johannes Calvin, which is actually the same J, J and C for Jesus Christ. So he had the same initials as Jesus. And it shows a hand holding a heart. And this was his motto, my heart, I offer to you, Lord, promptly and sincerely. All of his life was devoted to this idea that my life is I'm a living sacrifice. So everything that I have, it's offered to the Lord promptly and sincerely. On the right, this is the actually official trademark motto of Calvin College in Michigan. Um, So they've kind of adapted his and have taken it themselves. But Calvin's idea meant that work, how you think about work, means you work hard because it's to the glory of Christ. So if you're an accountant, if you're a teacher... That's holy. God has called you to that task and you work as if you're pleasing him. It changed the world. Even to today, historically Protestant states in Germany are more productive as far as gross production number, numerically, money-wise, than historically Catholic states. Isn't that wild? 
It's a uniquely Protestant idea of work and how we work because we're working unto the Lord, unto Christ. Um, and certainly marriage became transformed, the idea of marriage. So the, the reformers uncovered the biblical notion of Christ and his bride, of women supporting, helping their husbands, of husbands loving their wives tenderly that had been lost. They rediscovered it. Everything was changed. And again, Scripture is guiding this, this whole thing. Everything, as they rediscover passages in Scripture, all of life becomes changed. So I'm going to keep moving. Behind these men who sacrificed everything for biblical truth were women who supported them, who influenced them, who undergirded the work of Reformation. And we don't have as much information about the women because they're not writing theology, but we do have actually a good amount of, of information. So I will be highlighting two women, Idolette and, and Katie or Catherine Luther. These women were profoundly shaped by the truths of the Reformation first, and that's important. They, they became saved. These women became saved. And those convictions fueled their passion for serving Christ's church, serving their husbands self-sacrificially. Their lives were built and founded upon Calvin's motto, I offer my heart, Lord, to you promptly and sincerely. And for them specifically, as they read the Bible, they were trained to read, which again, wasn't common. Your average person didn't even know how to read. Um, but Catherine Luther was actually a nun. She was, she was taught how to read. And Edelette was taught how to read by her husband. So it's kind of interesting, cool story. But two passages in particular for them. As they're reading the Bible, two passages fueled their understanding of what it meant to be a biblical woman. And I just want to briefly look at them because I think they're helpful for us as well. So Genesis 2, go ahead and turn there. Very familiar passage. Very, very, very familiar. But I want to read it briefly. These were passages that both Edelette and Katie held dear to their hearts encouraging them, helping them to keep going through their difficult lives. Um, Genesis 2, verse, let's see. Let's start in verse 18, and I'll read a little bit. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now that out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. He gave names to livestock, birds, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God, God caused a deep sleep to fall on him, and he slept while he slept. The Lord took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So Luther would actually call Katie, his wife, my rib. <laughs> that was his little, his little nickname for her, which is really cute. Um, but the women of the Reformation understood their role to be a helper, to be a helpmeet to their husbands. And what that meant for them as they examined the text was that they actually were called to, in one sense, be strong for their husbands, where their husbands couldn't be strong. So the word helper in Hebrew is the same word, and I'm sure maybe you've heard this before, is the same word given to the Holy Spirit, right? Think about when Jesus leaves in the New Testament and he says, I'm going back up to my father, but don't be distressed. I'm going to send you my helper. 
he will be with you. When we think of the Holy Spirit, what do we think about? Power. (laughs) We think about strength. Not power in a bad way, but a, a power coming alongside of and lifting up, encouraging. Paraclete is the word to walk beside someone. And these women understood that that was their role for their husbands. Their husbands had extremely, excruciatingly hard schedules, and we'll, we'll talk more about their lives. And Katie and Idolette understood that their job was to help, not in a demeaning way, and their husbands supported this understanding too. Again, going back to the original idea of what God is intending here. Adam was perfect, no sin. <laughs> um, and God says, hey, still, the fact you're perfect, you don't have any sin, you're insufficient. You need help. You need someone beside you, even though you're perfect. So I'm going to create someone perfectly formed for you to walk beside you, lift you up, and encourage you. And that's, Idola and, and Katie, we know, they, they understood that. They internalized that. And that fueled their lives of self-sacrifice. Their life wasn't their own. Not only was it given to God, it was given to their husbands. And that is because of the Reformation. It's going back. It's not because of the Reformation. It's because of God. It's going back to God's word. But that idea of what it means to be a godly woman was rediscovered at this time. And what does that mean? It means that there's dignity to that. There's, there's strength in that. There's an understanding that our role as women is to come alongside and be a strong helper. Oh, the other passage then. Let's, let's keep going. Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31. We, we know Proverbs 31. But it's important to go over a little bit more because, again, we see this modeled in the lives of these women. So Proverbs 31 Verse 10, an excellent wife who can find, and we see Luther and Calvin frequently quoting this verse to their wives. So cool. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maiden. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor. She's not afraid of snow. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. And it continues. Strength and dignity are her clothing. She laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also. He praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. We'll see this modeled in in the lives of Katie and Edelette. Beautiful passage. So let's, let's look at their lives a little bit. Catherine, Katie, Katerina, Von Bora, 15, or 1499 to 1552. She was born into a moderately wealthy family and put into a convent at the age of 10. So her family realized they, 
it's actually a better life for her if she's put in a convent because then she'd get paid, paid for, she'd get clothed, she'd get fed, she'd get trained, which your average family, even if you're moderately wealthy, you couldn't, you couldn't provide that kind of life for your children. So it was actually pretty typical around the age of nine or 10 to give your children either to a, a nunnery or to a monastery. So she's there. We don't really know too much about her early life. We don't have much information, except we know that in her early teens, she went to hear a new young theology professor preach and teach at the University of Wittenberg, Martin Luther. And she heard that he was preaching from the Bible in German. Shocking, not Latin. So she and a bunch of other nuns went to hear him preach. And during this time, Luther had written a pamphlet. He wrote all sorts of crazy polemical writings read them. They're really cool and interesting. But this one is called Judgment on Monastic Vows, where he makes the case that no one should be a monk, no one should be a nun. And in fact, if you take a vow to be a nun or a monk, you're actually sinning. Because we don't see it in the text. We don't see God calling anyone to be a monk or a nun. So if you do it, if you take that vow, you're in sin. Uh, Okay, so that's a pretty incendiary thing to write when the whole system of society and culture is built around this idea that the best thing that you can do is to become a monk or a nun. Luther says, no, you're actually in sin if you do that. He also said that monastic life is not superior to normal domestic life. He said, actually, the home is as holy as the monastery. What? Shocking. Um, And he said further, no one should or could realistically keep a vow of chastity. So stop pretending and get married, basically. So to us, 21st century Christians, this may not seem, the contents seem normal of this this pamphlet. No big deal. Yes, marriage. Yes, not going to be a monk or a nun. But back then, shocking. Because it was a cardinal sin to break your vows. So if you vow to be a monk or a nun, and then later say, I don't want to be a monk or a nun, you're committing a cardinal sin. And in the Catholic Church, a cardinal sin means there's no hope for you to go to heaven. (laughs) So for Luther to say, not only have I broken my vow to be a monk, you all should take away your vows too. And no, it's not a cardinal sin. In fact, that's what you should be doing. You can imagine the type of debate and questioning that's going on. So Catherine and a few other of her friends got a hold of this pamphlet and some other of Luther's writings. They start reading them. They start reading the Bible because they know Latin, because they were trained Latin. And they're like, I think he's actually right. (laughs) I think we actually believe what he's saying. So they become convinced of the Reformed faith and they write letters back to their families. There were eight women. They write back to their families saying, we want to break our vows. Can we come back home and live with you, our families? And each letter comes back saying, no, you can't. You have to stay there. So in desperation, they write to Luther himself. Now, Luther's famous at this point, extremely famous. And they write to him and they say, we're stuck in this convent and we want to leave and we want to break our vows. We're convinced by your argument. Well, can you can you save us? And he actually does. He sends three of his men at night with a covered wagon to the wall of the convent. They throw ropes. This is not a joke. They throw ropes over the ledge and the eight women climb up the ropes 
into the covered wagon. In the wagon are barrels of herring, pickled herring, which is salty, smelly, stinky fish that they did on purpose because they had to travel six miles through Catholic country to get to Wittenberg, where they would be safe. And they're like, hey, if we put stinky fish, we're not going to get stopped by the Pope's armies, which are patrolling the areas during this time. They, and it's, I mean, we could make a movie out of this. I mean, it's, it's no joke this is what's going on. So they escape, they come to Wittenberg, and there are these eight nuns living in Wittenberg. They have no family. What are they going to do? Luther starts playing matchmaker. And one by one, marries the women off to his friends. He writes letters. We have the letters where he's talking about each one of the nuns, telling about them, and they, they slowly, one by one, get married. Now, Catherine had a number of suitors. She didn't like any of them. And she kind of likes Luther. So what does she do? She says, hey, why don't we get married? <laughs> no joke. She really does. And Luther, by this time, he's in his mid-40s. He wasn't planning on getting married. At that point in time, to get to 40 was, you're, you're pretty up there in age. Life expectancy wasn't very long. He was like, I'm going to preach the gospel and die. That's all. Um, but he's like, actually, maybe it's a good idea if I get married. Maybe, this is, maybe I should take my own advice and get married. So he thinks about it, and he goes to Catherine, and he says, yes, let's do it. They get married two weeks later. So there you go. That's one way of doing it. Um, So (laughs) they get married. He takes her to um, the Luther house. Very nice. This is a modern-day picture. You can go there. Um, it's actually a part of the University of Wittenberg, and because he was a professor, he was granted the, the ability to live there, and so he takes Catherine there. She becomes um, kind of the, the mistress of the household. She immediately began to oversee the operations of his, of his house, and if you know anything about Luther, he was a bit of a mess, um, so he was in debt. Um, there's a story where she finds where he had been sleeping and he hadn't cleaned his sheets, his blankets for over a year. And she's like, okay, we need to handle this. So she gets him out of debt. She handles the finances. She runs the household. So you can see it's quite a large place. And at this time, because Luther's famous, Dozens of people would flock from all over Europe to come and listen to Luther because every night at dinner, he'd have what he would call his table talks, which are all, we have a record of, of all of them. They're really interesting, where he would pose a question and they would just discuss theology. And so people would come for miles just to come and sit at his table and talk to him. Now, who's going to feed these people? Before, he didn't really have food for them. They would just come, they'd make do, it'd be fine, whatever. Katie's like, no, we, <laughs> that's not okay. So <laughs> she starts handling things. She milked the cows, goats. They had a garden. She turned, churned butter. She tends to the cheese. They're making cheese. She actually raised and slaughtered her own animals. Crazy. She went to the market, of course, to buy what she couldn't grow. She cleaned. She raised their six children. And typically worked, of course, as, as many of you mothers and family women know, 
She was working over 18 hours a day. Luther referred to as the morning star of Wittenberg because she rose daily at 4 a.m. So she took Proverbs 31 (laughs) and modeled her life after it. She was a businesswoman. She was an incredible businesswoman. Um, And Luther loved it. He just let her go. (laughs) He said, please handle it because I can't do it. So she not only was a savvy businesswoman, she had a strong curiosity and regularly, regularly actually participated in their table talks that they would have. And many... Many reformers and people actually didn't approve of his marriage to her because she wasn't your typical quiet woman. She was very, she was strong-minded. She voiced her opinion. She asked questions um, and actually debated Luther. They had a very spirited relationship. You can read his letters to her. He addresses her very sarcastically and teasing her. He called her his rib. He called her my lord. So she called him my dear doctor, um, my, my most reverend husband. So they had all these little nicknames for each other. It was, it's a really, really cute relationship. But Luther really flourished with being married. It, it, rough, it kind of took off his rough edges. It mellowed him a lot. Um, his, his friends began to say, wow, this is the best thing for you that you ever could have done. But she became his publishing agent. Um, helping to secure publishing contracts for many of his writings. So she was, she was extremely strong, and probably the way that she helped him the most was that Luther suffered greatly from many illnesses. He treated his body like his slave, um, and years of being a monk, beating his body, not caring about health, fed into his life as a reformer, where he literally just didn't sleep and didn't eat. And she was trained in medicine at the convent. So all of the medicinal herbal medicines that she would have learned, she was able to help her husband with. But he also suffered from depression, pretty severe depression. And she would help encourage him and cheer him up. Um, One story, which I think is a funny story, Luther was so depressed that none of her counsel would help. And so she left the room comes back wearing a black dress. And Luther says, did someone die? Why are you wearing a black dress? And she says, well, yes, it appears that God has died because you are not treating your life as if God is still alive. And so Luther kind of snapped out of it and went on his way. And so very feisty personality. Um, and their marriage is, was a very, very special thing. At one point in time, two years after their their marriage, Luther was dangerously ill, and he thought he would die. So he asked, where's my dearest Katie? He called her Katie. And he said, I commend you to God, my dear Katie. You have nothing, but God will take care of you. He is the father of orphans and widows. Katie, you know I have nothing to leave you but the silver cups. She encouraged him with passages from Scripture and replied, my dearest doctor, if it is God's will, then I would rather that you should be with our beloved Lord God than with me. But... It is not so much I and my children that need you, as do many pious Christians. Afflict yourself, not about me. I I commend you to his divine will, but I trust in God that he will mercifully preserve you. And he did. So he recovered from that illness. Um, So the Luther family in life was, was a very happy one. It was busy. It was happy. They kept continuing in work and ministry. Um, until one day the joys of marriage for the Luthers were overshadowed by the death of their dearly beloved daughter, Magdalena. 
when she was 14. So they had six children together. Magdalena, their first daughter died, so Magdalena was the oldest surviving girl. And she, drew, she got ill, and they could tell that she wasn't going to survive. Luther was devastated, and he held her. He said, my dear Magdalena, my little girl, you would be glad to remain here with your father, but are you willing to depart and go to your other father? She said, yes, my dear father, just as God pleases. Luther turned, not able to conceal the tears in his eyes, and he said, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And she then died in his arms. Catherine is in the room, weeping bitterly, and Luther said to her, dear Catherine, think where she has gone. She has certainly made a happy journey. We, dear Catherine, should not lament as though we had no hope. We have dismissed a saint, yea, a living saint for heaven. Oh, that we would so die. Such a death I would willingly accept this very hour. So Luther was pretty devastated by Magdalena's death. She was his favorite, even though you weren't supposed to have favorites. She was his favorite, and he never really recovered from her death. It aged him prematurely. He became unwell in some of his subsequent travels, and he wrote his last letter to Catherine telling her that he had hoped to be able to return home the next week. But then he sank so rapidly into sickness, he died before she could be brought to his side. His body was brought back to the Luther house. There's a picture, Magdalena. Um, And thousands attended his funeral. So Catherine experienced seven years of widowhood, and they were extremely difficult. There was an outbreak of war, a long-anticipated war between the reformed princes and the emperor. Their farm lay in the war zone. So... They were in a war zone, and she didn't have protection of her husband. Heavy war taxes were imposed on her, and the plague came to Wittenberg. So various times throughout this history, the plague would come and ravage the towns and the cities. While she was escaping from the plague, she fell from the wagon and never recovered. And she died three months later, saying, I will cleave to my Lord Christ as a burr to the cloth. God used Catherine, such a strong, faithful woman, to further his work in ways that most of us won't experience. But her life, it really was simply a life of biblical faithfulness. She viewed herself as one who was offering her heart promptly and sincerely to her Lord. And she, he used her as he wished. She followed God's vision of biblical womanhood day in and day out took steps of faith day in and day out, just making it to the next day. And that quiet legacy left a legacy. That's truly amazing. So that's Catherine. And I want to say more, but we need to move on because I want to talk about Idola as well. And if you have questions, we can talk more in the questions. So I'll try to end in about 15 minutes so that we can have time for questions. But I do want to talk about Idola Calvin. So 1500 to 1549. While the Luthers were living and working in Germany, south, over the border, in France, the Reformation was going on full force, especially in the city called Strasbourg. Strasbourg in the 1530s was an intensely interesting, a lively city, a fun city, and it was a reformed city. It had become a refuge for many, many reformers, persecuted people, chiefly French people, but even people from Switzerland. Switzerland. Wow. Switzerland and Germany would come and stay there in Strasbourg as well. 
One of those was Calvin. So Calvin, as you remember, he was French. He had to flee France. He went down to Switzerland. He was kicked out of Geneva. The pastor of the church in Strasbourg asked him to come to Strasbourg and be the, the pastor of another church, of a French church, French-speaking church for refugees. So Calvin agreed. He comes to Strasbourg, is the pastor of that church. Now, among the ordinary citizens who had heard about the Reformation, who had been impacted by the Reformation, and who had been saved and become believers, was a family named the Storters. And they were excited. They were living. They also had been living in Geneva, were kicked out, and they also came to Strasbourg. And they were excited to hear that Calvin, this famous young preacher, was going to be their new pastor. He was already becoming quite well-known through his institutes and his teaching. So, They attended his lectures. So Calvin was tasked to preach every day. He would give a theology lesson every day, lecture every day, public for everyone to come. And then on Sunday, he would preach as often as four times, which is crazy. So very, very busy schedule. Um, And because he was so clear in how he thought and had great theology and had a rare ability to communicate well, he was chosen to represent Strasbourg in the debates that would happen around the area. So he was frequently traveling to debate both Roman Catholic theologians and other Reformed theologians. So very busy schedule. But the Storters would attend, John and Edelette attended his lectures. He was their pastor They invited him over for dinner because he also was a bachelor and also would not eat and also would not sleep and also didn't know how to make food. And so they would feed him and a warm friendship developed between the three of them. They would discuss the institutes. Idolette herself records just reading and reading and reading the institutes, just kind of soaking it in. And a warm friendship developed between the three of them until... Tragedy struck, um, and the plague came yet again to Strasbourg. So we haven't really talked much about the plague, but the Black Plague, the bubonic plague, horrific illness. You're stricken and you're dead within a few days. And it wiped out, I think, as much as half of the population of Europe within a span of just a few years. Think about that. Half, that's like in this room, half of us would be gone. So there's not a single family that's not affected by the plague at all, whether it's children dying, spouse dying, family dying, other family members dying. So John Storter um, contracts the plague. Storter was a carver, a wood wood carver, ivory carver. He and Edelet had a wonderful marriage. Um, he was a kind, strong man. Edelet cared for him, um, for the few days that he was ill before he passed away. Calvin came and visited him as well. And his death was a profound blow to Edelette. So now she's a widow with two children, a boy and a girl. She had nowhere to go. There's no life insurance. There's no retirement benefits. If your husband dies, you're gone. I mean, there's, you can't do anything as a woman, except for Calvin's Geneva. <laughs> but his reforms hadn't carried over into Strasbourg yet at that point in time. So what does she do? Thankfully, she had a brother that lived in Strasbourg. So she moved in with her brother. Previously, she had had a home to herself that she could be the taking care of. And now she's moving in with her brother, living in one room with her two children. So um, at this point in time, like Luther, Calvin was convinced that he would remain single, that he would not get married. 
Um, His life was dedicated to scripture and to the church. However, like Luther, he basically was destroying himself with work. And he was constantly ill, sometimes so sick that he would have to be carried on a bed to the pulpit for him to preach from. So just a very sick man. And his friends persuaded him that he needed someone to help him and handle him, handle his life. So they tried. They tried to set him up twice. It didn't work for various reasons. But finally, Martin Bootser, the man who called him to Strasbourg in the first place, suggested the gentle Edelette, who is now a widow. And Calvin was like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. Um, but he, he actually really liked her. And she was beautiful. She was godly. She was kind. She was smart. She was cheerful. And he's like, that sounds great. Um, but no one had told Idolette yet that this was the plan. So <laughs> things worked a little bit differently back then. So Bootser goes to Idolette and says, what do you think? Would you like to marry Calvin? And her husband had died pretty recently. So she wasn't actually sure that she wanted to marry him, even though they were friends. Um, and, but Bootser said, you have a week to figure it out. <laughs> and during that week, she and Calvin didn't communicate at all. Um, so she was given time to think whether she wanted to move forward with this. And she, as we know, said, yes, this is something that she did want to do. Um, she knew that Calvin would be a good husband, a good faithful man. He was kind, he was thoughtful. Um, and honestly, she needed someone to take care of her. But she also knew, and we, she was deeply pious. Idolette was a very devoted woman to the Lord, very humble um, her prayers are just just incredible. And she knew that marrying Calvin would help the Reformation um, because by helping Calvin, she could free him up to actually stop being sick all the time and write and preach and teach more effectively. So she agreed, and they had a, a wonderful marriage, a joyful marriage. A married life was sweet for Calvin. Only a few weeks after he got married, he wrote to his good friend, William Farrell, about how pleased he was with his new wife. He found marriage to be a special experience of great joy. Their marriage became a true and solid bond of love and loyalty. Some of the letters that he wrote to her are just, just so sweet. She was very patient, um, which she kind of needed to be because Calvin was a little bit absent-minded. Even He was kind and thoughtful. But for instance, one time he bought her roses, flowers, and he then was thinking about his institutes that he was continually revising. So he went to a study to write down his ideas, and he left the flowers there, only to go back a few days later, and they were all dried up. So he never gave them to Edelette. That's just one story of his his absent-mindedness. But he had to travel quite a lot continually, as I mentioned, and... One time when he was away, the plague came to Strasbourg while he was gone. And he was so worried. He wrote a letter um, to one of his friends. He said, Day and night my wife is in my thoughts now that she is deprived of my counsel and must do without her husband. He left the debate and came home early to be with her and make sure she was okay from the plague. She was spared from the plague, but her brother, Charles, who she had lived with, and his wife lost their only son. And they asked Calvin and Edelette if their Edelette's son, with her first marriage, could live with them because they lost their son. They were so devastated. And Edelette didn't want to give up her son to live with her brother, his aunt and uncle, but he really wanted to go because he didn't like Calvin. 
which is another source of grief for Idilet. We don't really know why. If it's just he was probably 10 or 11 when his father died, and 10 and 11-year-old boy didn't want a new dad. We don't really know why, but um, her son, Charles, didn't want to live with Calvin and Idilet. So Idilet asked Calvin, what should we do? Should we let him go live with his aunt and uncle? And Calvin said, I just married you. He's your son. I will, it's, it's whatever you think is best. Think, th- think through it. I'll help you pray through it, but you decide what's best. You're his mom. And Idolette decided to let him stay with her brother and his aunt. And he actually never came back and lived with Idolette and Calvin, which was a source of just huge grief for her constantly throughout the years. He, he just didn't want to live with Calvin and Idolette. So, um, They were married for less than a year before Geneva, the city of Geneva, where they had both come from, requested that Calvin come back to Geneva. He had been there. He had started reforming the city so much so that they didn't like it. So they kicked him out. And then they realized, oh, wait, he was doing something really great. We want him back. And they asked him to come back. He didn't want to go back because it was such a horrible experience for him because they hated him there. So he wrote to Pharrell. He said, when I call to mind the wretchedness of my life, how can it be not but that my very soul must shudder at any proposal for my return? He really didn't want to go back, but he knew that it would further the Reformation if, if he went to Geneva. It was a much bigger city, a much more, he would be given a position of more influence there. So he he decided to go with Idolette. Charles, her son, stayed behind in Strasbourg. And they're quite far, if you think of a map of Europe. (laughs) Uh, Geneva, and I was going to put a map on here, but I didn't. Their driving time today on modern freeways, it's like five hours between Geneva and Strasbourg. Back then, it would have been a multiple days journey to get there. So, Calvin's fame grew in Geneva. They were given a home they were, with a garden. They were given a stipend from the city. So Idolette uh, was able to entertain. They had, much like the Luthers, they had people coming in from all over Europe wanting to hear from Calvin. She usually baked more than 20 loaves of bread per week. So if anyone who's made or seen bread made by hand, um, no bread makers. Even that alone knows how much of a task that was. She did much like Katie, ran the household, provided for the family. Calvin was only 32 years old at this time, but and he was committed to an immense amount of work. Government committees, his usual schedule of teaching, preaching, writing, correspondence. He rose daily at 5 a.m. Again, working on his institutes, expanded them through the third edition. He worked on them basically till he died. Um, And he was writing commentary on each book of the Bible. He preached multiple times on Sunday, public lectures every single day. Idolette, in her loving care of his health and comfort, was all that he could desire. He was so happy with her. Um, And she was a much-needed confidant, counselor, and sounding board. Calvin also struggled with depression and would frequently just sink into despair as he saw the state of the Reformation in Europe. And she, it was her job to speak with him and she would cheer him up and comfort him. She often would go in his place to visit the sick in the hospitals because he, he was too unwell. He still struggled um, with being unwell constantly throughout his life. Her counsel to him was always be true to the Lord at whatever cost. She told him, don't shrink back from your responsibilities for my sake. Do what you need to do. Don't worry about me. I will help you. She said, even if it means to death, I will be there beside you. 
And he took that and he was able then to be strong to continue the work of reformation. Idola understood her role as his helper. She was appointed by God to enable him to work hard, shielding him from the daily business of the household and caring for him physically as well as emotionally. At that time, another crisis occurred. The plague yet again went and ravaged Strasbourg. And Charles, Idolette's son, is there. And she doesn't know whether he's living or not. There was no, she couldn't call um, her brother and see what was going on. Even letters would take weeks. And again, thinking of the plague, you're gone within a few days. So she is in deep distress. Um, at this point in time, she's seven months pregnant with their first child, she and Calvin's first child. And the plan was for her good friends, the Bootsers, Martin and his wife, to come from Strasbourg, bring Charles down to Geneva and be with, so that Mrs. Bootser, we actually don't know her first name, Martin's wife, could be with Idolette when she gave birth to their first child. So they were supposed to bring Charles, but now Idolette didn't even know if Charles was alive. Um, eventually, news came to Geneva. Ch- Charles had survived the plague, but Mrs. Bootser and their four children had died. So Mrs. Bootser was her best friend in Strasbourg. So f- her feelings of grief, knowing her dear friend had died, and now feeling compassion for Martin Bootser, who has to continue the Reformation in Strasbourg alone, was also her anxiety of knowing that it was going to be Calvin's turn soon to serve his time as chaplain of the plague hospital in Geneva. So the, the pastors would do rotations of serving as chaplain in the plague hospitals, which I mean, pretty much meant that they would catch the plague. Um, and they did that consistently um, throughout each time the plague would hit. Perhaps all of these events had a cum- cumulative effect on her health, Yelet's health. So... We know um, that summer she was carrying water. She would gather water daily from the well in the middle of the town. She was carrying it back to the house. And we know something happened where she went into labor early. She was only seven months pregnant. Um, she, was, she became unconscious from the pain. She, called a, she had her daughter Judith call a midwife. And she gave birth to Jacques, their son. Um, and he was healthy. She almost died, though, from, from that uh, birth. Unfortunately, he was healthy at first, but Jacques only lived for a few days, dying in the night in his mother's arms. And she was so devastated, she just held him until morning. Calvin woke up, saw her holding him, and removed him from her arms. Calvin's We're both devastated. Calvin wrote to his friend, The Lord has certainly inflicted on us a severe and bitter wound in the death of our beloved son. But he himself is a father. He knows what is good for his children. In the same letter, Calvin noted that Edelette was too grief-stricken to write and was still recovering from a delivery that almost took her life as well, although she was submitting to God's will in her affliction. Much like with Luther at, at... with Jacques' death, the story of Idolette really changes. From that point on, her health just continued to deteriorate. She was in constant pain. She became pregnant three more times and lost each baby. And insult was heaped upon injury as Catholics wrote that, well, since the Calvins aren't able to have kids, it must be God's judgment on them. See, the Reformation isn't right Calvin later said that the profound affliction of losing his children was lifted only by meditating on God's word and through prayer. 
He said he also found comfort in knowing that he had myriads, myriads of sons and daughters throughout the Christian world through his work of Reformation. After Jacques died, Idolette really wanted to have Charles come and live with them. So she went up to Strasbourg to see if he'd be willing to come down to Geneva and live with her. And she said, please, do you want to live with us? <laughs> please come. And he said, I'll be willing. If you, if you force me to, I will come and honor you that way, but I would prefer to stay in Strasbourg. And she let him stay. So that was another thing that just continually hurting hurts, hurt upon hurt heaped up on her soul. So she became weaker and weaker. She had a cough, chest pains, and one day um, her cough was so violent that she knew that she probably wouldn't last much longer. She wasn't able to walk to church. It became desperately difficult. But her death was as her life. Calvin was at her side, speaking to her of the happiness that they had enjoyed for nine years and about the joy she would soon have in exchanging an abode on earth for her father's house above. She expressed her hope in God as her dying words and entrusted her beloved husband to her father in heaven. I'm really going long. One last thing. He, he quoted, I do what I can that I may not be altogether consumed with grief. This is a letter that he wrote to his friend, Calvin. I've been bereaved of the best companion of my life, of one who, had it been so ordered, would not only have been the willing sharer of my exile and poverty, but even of my death. She was the faithful helper of my ministry. Edelet didn't write any books on theology, nor did she preach or go to the mission field. Hers was a life of humble obedience and service. Had she not been the wife of the famous reformer, we wouldn't have known about her. Her life was a life of suffering, yet she demonstrated the importance of a humble walk with God and whatever he calls us to do. Two very different women, but they both offered their hearts promptly and sincerely to their Lord. And by doing that, they furthered the Reformation in ways that it wouldn't have been able to be done without them. I will end there. <laughs> um, Thank you for your time. And I know you may have to go and save seats um, or anything that you need to do. But if questions for about five minutes, if you have questions, comments, if you want further clarification, anything that you want to comment, now is your time. Yes? Any recommended reading? Recommended reading. Great question. So, yes, there's a lot of recommended reading. Calvin's Institutes, <laughs> they're, they're, they're heavy, they're thick, they're, but it's a great summary of theology. Um, there's a great book on the life of Katie Luther. Um, it's a popu- kind of like a popular um, story. It, I believe it's in the bookstore. Um, who's the author? I don't have the author in mind right now. But if you, if you even just Google biography of Katie Luther, it's the most recent one. That, that came out. Um, that's just really helpful to kind of look into her life. Calvin has a little book on the Christian life that I required for the Puritan theology class that I taught in the spring. It's a little summary of some truths of the Reformation. It's actually called A Little Book on the Christian Life. Um, it's in the bookstore. Highly recommend that as a devotional book. So those are three things. Um, yes? Yes. Yeah. Great question. Where can we get the letters that the the men sent to their wives? So they're in various things. Any biography of Calvin or Luther, include them in it. So um, 
there's a bunch of biographies of Calvin and Luther. And you can actually even just Google correspondence of Luther. And so they've taken just his letters and have put, published them as a book. Now they're his letters to everything, to everyone. So it's not just to his wife. So that's another one. If, if you look for correspondence of Luther or Calvin, um, they're published. So, yes. Mm-hmm. Ooh, great question. Why wasn't the Reformation in other parts of Europe, like Spain and Italy? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, so they were the stronghold of, of Catholicism. And even today, I mean, that has, that has stayed. So pretty much there just wasn't a foothold um, for the Reformation ideas to take a hold in Spain and Italy because it was just so all the, all the rulers were very, very committed Catholic, and the princes, so the like under rulers, none of them became convinced by the Reformation truths. So, it's, I mean, there isn't persecution today um, in the same sense, but as far as religious belief in Spain and Italy, it's still very closed toward anything that's not Roman Catholic. So that has remained the stronghold. Yeah. Which is a sad thing, but other questions or comments? Okay. We're good. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you for your time. This has been such a great time. And um, 